Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, folks. Roach on Recovery, your humble correspondent. We are coming to you live at the uh, San Francisco International Airport. WOCG Radio. I'm trying to go to an area where it's quiet. We're waiting for our humble co-host, Mr. Producer, as he comes off of his flight, trying to get an interview. I see you right there. I see the host right here in SFO. We're still trying to... Mr. Morales. Mr. Morales, can we get a word with you, please? Oh, man, I don't have time for this. I just got home from a long this, trip. I'm out of here. We're, who, who are you? What is this all about? We're from WOCG Radio. We just, just a minute of your time. We know you're in a rush. We know you're trying to get your bags. We see your wife over there being mobbed by the foreign media. But we just need a word, just a quick couple of questions, sir. Can we have a, just a quick oh, moment what, of your what time? What on earth is this all about? You better make this real quick. Um, I understand that you're coming in from Spain. Is that correct, sir? That is incorrect, sir. We are arriving back from Italy. Oh, then, okay, let me just check here. We got our information wrong. How was your trip? Uh, The trip was phenomenal. Spain, France, Italy, although they are all very close in proximity, they're all their own worlds. It was a a heck of a time. Okay. Um, Would you like to comment on... uh, the uh, the stuff that's been in 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 the news uh, regarding what's been going on, you know, uh, at the sites, um, is that something you would care to comment on, or 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 or, or what? No, no, I don't I don't care to comment on too much else. I got to be honest with you, I'm in a bit of a rush here, and I don't know who you are or what you're all about. Well, we're just we're just trying to get some information regarding stuff that we've heard. Um, 
But uh, we'll let you grab your bag, sir, and um, hopefully we can uh, touch base with you and confirm or deny the stories that we've heard. How's that? Right, right. Thanks for nothing. Okay, all right. Thank you, sir. So we just uh, tried to interview uh, our humble uh, host and uh, correspondent. Why don't we – we're going to take a very, very quick break, give him time to get to the studio. He's got a limo waiting for him uh, to rush him quickly to the studio. And so we're going to um, uh, wait for him, let him get settled, and then we'll officially start our show. So we'll be back in like two minutes. I'll be 
All right. Roach and Recovery back with you. It helps that we were able to buy off the scrap heap, the Monsignor's helicopter, for our humble producer to use from the airport to his studio location. Mr. Producer, are you settled in? Are you in your chair? I am in the chair, and uh, that's all about it takes for me to get settled in. We can uh, deal with the details at another time, but I am yep. here and ready to go. How was your helicopter ride? Uh, incredibly turbulent, in fact, more so than the airplane ride, and being that there are no doors on that son of a gun, uh, I could say I'd rather uh, do without, but it got me here in one piece. There you go. And we will talk about that airplane ride in a minute. Um, so while you were on vacation, uh, we did continue to have technical difficulties. Um, it's, you know, things always seem like they last longer than they are. And, and it, that was the case. It seemed like it lasted longer than it did because upon listening to the show, uh, playing it back and listening to it. The network shutoff only lasted, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 seconds, and then that was it. It seemed like it was a lot longer to me, but this is just a forewarning that we've been experiencing this the last two shows now. (laughs) (laughs) Out of no, out of no, after having a good, I don't know, 18-month to two-year run, of no issues, technical issues, now all of a sudden they pop back up and it's the same issues that we're just getting kicked off the network. I mean, when we say network, we don't mean our own internet connection. We mean off of the server that we're using to actually put the show out over the internet. Um, That's right. The, the service that we are uh, using, I should say, Blog Talk. But um, So if something happens, we'll, we'll figure it out. But the let... Uh, the first time it happened, I believe, Mr. Producer, in the July, one of the July shows, you were able, you were still connected, you were able to hear and everything, and no one could hear me. So if right. that happens again, the only way you can let me know, obviously, is by texting me and telling me. Um, and it was kind of odd when you weren't here because the only way I could confirm that I was off the air is I had to wait for the message to pop up on my screen, but I knew something was up because calls were dropping off and coming back on. And so I knew something was going on with the network. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> Hopefully we'll be able to fig- figure it out and sort it out. Uh, that's the hope. That's the hope. So how were the flights? Oh, the flights. Um, the flights were actually not very bad at all. Um, one thing that I definitely wanted to mention or make note of was, and I believe it just kind of confirms what you had said, but the longest flight, uh, there were four or five, I guess there were five flights, but the, the four main flights were when we left SFO and arrived in Newark and then went from Newark to Spain to Madrid. And then the flights, home, which were from Rome to Toronto, and then Toronto back to SFO. So the flight from Rome to Toronto was the longest flight of the four, nine and a half hours. And when I was reading the aircraft to you uh, on the show before we left, um, this was the one that you had said 
there was some sort of number or, or letter next to it that implied that it was a heavy flight. Uh, well, I believe you were on a triple seven. Yeah, that's correct. Right. So I think you said it was a triple seven dash ER. Yeah, one of them was the one where you where you had mentioned. Oh, this one is a heavy, and, and it was. That's correct. It was on the itinerary going from Rome to Toronto that it was going to be, you know, what they constitute a heavy aircraft. You explained that on the air. Um, yeah, so uh, the flights, you took three different types of planes. When you went from SFO to Newark, you were on a 757. They call that a single-aisle plane. You then took a 767 from Newark over to Madrid, if I recall correctly. I think and so. that's a two-aisle plane, so that's considered a heavy and then you took a triple seven back, and I asked you to pay attention on the triple seven on the takeoff because it's, you know, G forces that high G forces you wouldn't experience on any other plane. Um, and then, so that would be a heavy. And then I think you said you were taking from Toronto McPherson to SFO a, a, a 767. That would also be a heavy, a two aisle. Plane. Yeah. So the. The one that we took from Toronto or from Rome to Toronto, uh, yeah, you were entirely accurate about like the from the takeoff on the runway to actually when the wheels are up and you're starting to get airborne to when you reach your cruising altitude, um, you wouldn't be able to tell, you know, unless you were real experienced with flying like which part was which because it was so incredibly smooth. Yeah. You just felt when they hit the engines and you're on the runway. And basically from that moment until you're at cruising altitude, there's no drop. There's no dip. There's no, you, my wife described it as you don't even really feel like you're on an airplane. Yeah. Just, yeah. uh, just so smooth. If, if you recall, I was describing to you how on most planes, even the seven four, you know, the the, lar- the ones that are larger than that, and the ones beneath it, when you first lift off the ground, you experience a, just a slight period of weightlessness, a little dip, right, before you feel that those that the the air come under those wings and and that lift, you know, and you then you feel that like whoosh as it takes you up, on the triple seven because of the max the thrust on those engines, there's no dip. Right, like immediate. It's like immediate. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There, there definitely never was. It was, it was a crazy experience for sure. Um, to feel, yeah, to feel that, just kind of how, yeah. how smooth that was. Um, but yeah, no, all the all the flights were actually good. There was some turbulence um, on the flight from Newark to Spain. Um, but not a lot. Um, okay. Nothing to nothing to where like the stewardesses were asked to sit down or buckle their seatbelt or anything like that. Okay. Um, and that flight, we pretty much we did our best to sleep on because it was the one where even though the flight is only six hours, you're arriving like at nine a.m. the next morning, even though you're leaving, you know, nine p.m. because of the right. time change. Right. Um, so we did our best to sleep and were able to sleep. So then when we arrived, it was morning, just like our bodies felt it was. Okay. Lucky you. I can't sleep 
on a plane for, for the life of me. But anyway, all right, good stuff. So the t- the term, the the official term that you and your wife have to adopt is when you've gone on your flights and everything has gone smooth, there's been no upset. The term is it has it was uneventful. That, that's exactly correct. That's what it was. So, and that's what we want, uneventful flights. All right. Or as one pilot said to me, flying is sheer boredom interrupted by moments of stark terror. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a very excellent way to describe it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Excellent way well, to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick before we hit into our topic, um, obviously training camp has started. Oh, um, yes, indeed it has. We can address the specifics of our teams on our next show, but just real quick, your comment on the Ezekiel Elliott suspension. Oh, boy. Um well, you're going to have to give me a couple minutes on this one. Not real quick. Give me a couple minutes on this one. As a fan, uh, just a raw fan, excluding all things like, you know, if I'm a father and I want my child to look up to such an individual or whatever because athletes are in the spotlight. As a pure fan, I think it sucks because he's an electric player. He, you know, and as a fan in the league, the respective league, NBA, NFL, whatever, you want to see the best players play. Um, he's a dynamic, young, electric player, electric player. And um, the fact that he, you know, he'll appeal it. I don't know if they'll drop it from six to four or whatever. But from a fan's perspective, it sucks. You know, that lowers the entertainment value. I was looking forward to seeing him in his sophomore year with uh, Dak Prescott and all that. Um as a human being, you know, I, if, if the allegations are true, obviously domestic violence is something that has been kind of cropping up in prevalency, if that's even a word, in the NFL recently. And so I know they're trying to lay the hammer down, and I think with good reason. This all started with the video of Ray Rice a couple of years back, you know, uh, knocking his wife out in the elevator. Um, it's no good. Uh, and then, so my reaction, if I take all of those pieces into one reaction, um, I, I can't speak to the six games because that's subjective. I don't know what's fair and what's not fair, but um, I will say that I think there definitely needed to be punishment. And if that's what they've deemed punishment is for domestic violence, then it is what it is. It needs to be served. It's unfortunate. He's a young guy, and there needs to be hopefully some people in that Dallas locker room uh, that can pull him under their wing, some veterans, and it's got to be hard when you're that young and you have that much money and that much stardom. Uh, the spotlight is on you, and not many of them know how to deal with it. Well, um, this occurred, you knew he was going to be a character. This, the incident occurred before he was, uh, quote-unquote, what we know him to be now as after okay. last season. But in any event, um, <clears throat> the domestic violence thing has always been there in sports. It's that they started paying attention to it, and sure, the Ray okay. Rice thing just made, blew it up. But guys were getting away with this crap for years in, in major sports. Um, so now with social media and everything just being out there, and your whole life being out there, if you're a public, you know, figure in, in sports or entertainment, um, 
these things aren't going to be swept under the carpet anymore. And even if you know, if you're in a, in a you know star player in a particular town, the, you know the local police or DA aren't going to give you any favors like they did in the '70s and the '80s and even the '90s. So it's sure, a different yeah. world. Um, you know, this particular allegation is a he said, she said, and all that stuff. Um, but just in terms of the technicalities of it, I believe he's going to, if uh, I don't believe the, he's going to win anything on appeal because to me, if you give him six games and then you lower it, what are you saying? So that's right. one. Number two, I believe he is going to take it to federal court and try and get an injunction um, like Tom Brady did and stretch it out for possible. Ultimately, I think he'll lose. Um, even if he's granted an injunction, I think just like Tom Brady, on a, at the appellate level, they'll lose because the commissioner has the power under Article 46 to, to issue out punishment, even if you haven't been convicted of a crime. So they bargained that away. So that's that. And that's my opinion on the matter. <clears throat> maybe they'll have the maybe they'll have the gumption and the unity as a as a NFL Players Association union to strike and get what's fair in terms of pay and the power that the commissioner has, like the other sports leagues were willing to do. You remember, I don't know, maybe you don't remember, but 1995, we didn't have a World Series because the baseball was on strike. We That's lost right. three quarters of an NBA season, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the in 1998-99 season uh, because the players were on strike. So in hockey, we lost a full season. Okay, there was no Stanley Cup. So different leagues were willing to go to an extreme in order to get something that was beneficial. The NFL players haven't been willing to do that. So we'll see what happens. All right. You ready for our topic, sir? Absolutely. What the hell's going on out here? Yeah, what the heck is going on out here? What the, <laughs> the heck is going on here? Lombardi drop. Exactly. What the hell is going on here? So, in a classic case of while the cat's away, the mice will play. That's right. You are you you are aware, Mr. Producer, in your alternative role of various happenings and goings on that have been going on. Um, not just in your place, but in others, of, uh, let's just, as my father would term it, uh, misbehavior. Yes. <laughs> and whenever we get a, uh, a period of this happening, it, of course it bothers me, but it bothers me on different levels. Obviously, it, there's no emotional attachment to it, so it does, and it doesn't bother me, quote-unquote, personally, um, but I still have a visceral kind of reaction to it, um, big picture-wise, um, because something happens that I just have never in 28 years been able to get an answer to. And when I say get an answer to, meaning that it's actually not something that I'm going to an answer to because 9.9 times out of 10, if I were to ask the, a, a specific person the question, I don't think they'd be able to answer it. So I always wonder, basically, 
ground level, simple. If you're not ready for recovery, and you know whether or not you're not ready before you even walk in the doors, which is different to me. Someone could be in their heart ready to give this a shot and impulsively leave because of something that that yeah. to me doesn't mean that they weren't ready, you know, that they weren't seriously wanting in their heart to try and do this recovery thing. What it tells me is that, okay, they still have to learn how to control their impulsive reaction when, when they get triggered and when they get in an emotional uproar. Okay. You need to learn how to stay planted and just be in the moment and feel whatever it is that you're going through. So, Someone who just impulsively leaves, I don't put in that category. But someone who walks in the door, knowing in their heart that they have no interest in recovery, okay, I always have why. And not the obvious answer why. I know some people, if they had a choice between jail, if a judge says you either go to prison or you go to OCG, they're going to choose OCG. They're not going to choose prison. Or jail right. and OCG. They're going to choose OCG. They're not, they're not going to choose jail. And that applies to all, all the other programs as well. But as I used to tell the adolescents who were ordered in, like they weren't given a choice. So if they found that, if, you know, if, the, if the juvenile court system and everyone involved, probation, the judge, social workers, caseworkers, and what have you, found out that you had a drug problem, the judge would order you into treatment, even against your will. And we know what that was like, obviously, when, when that would happen. But that's yes, as a minor, indeed. as a minor, the courts has the ability to do that. But I would ask the adolescents every now and then, when they would have a problem about being in, 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 in our program, I said, look, why did you stand up in front of the judge and say, Judge, I am not ready for treatment yet. I will be a distraction and a disservice to the program and take a spot from somebody else who is ready to turn their life around. I'm not. So I would say to them, you can do that. You could stand up and tell the judge that. And most judges will say, you know what, I appreciate your honesty. And no, I'm not going to put you in a program if you're just going to be a disservice and a distraction. Okay, to others. So here, here you go. I'm going to send you over to the hall. Or, hey, I'm going to send you over to the jail. But when you knowingly, from the moment you're in front of that judge, that, and you know in your heart that you have no interest in recovery at this moment in time, and that is okay. There is nothing wrong with that because that's that that's the truth as it is for you at that moment in time. And as I always tell clients, if there's anything you do, at least stand in your truth. And if your truth is, I'm not ready for this. I still feel like using. I still want to use. So be it. Do it to either A, let your PO know, let the judge know. Let mama know, let daddy know, let whomever know, I'm not ready. You should be ready when you take this on. And it shouldn't be a, um, uh, like an, an exit ramp to avoid the traffic ahead 
and skirt around things because the end result is since your heart isn't in it, that means your mind is elsewhere. Your mind is focused on other things, and usually those things are negative. And usually those things involve doing negative things in the program, contributing, contributing to the negativity in the environment, et cetera, et cetera. So when we have clients bring drugs onto the property, and as a result of that, I mean, <laughs> it's not funny, but on one level it's kind of funny, but in reality it's not funny. But it's it's almost like, um, you know, dropping, you know, kibble into a a room of puppies. You know what I mean? What are they going to do? They're going to all go and run after the kibble and eat it. And so if you're in right. a, a, a residential facility – and you have them, uh, uh, especially now. See, back in the day, and for us, back in the day was two years ago, so it wasn't that far, right? Far, far back, when the residential treatment experience was much longer, okay, you would have a mix of clients at various stages. So you'd have your zero to three months, your three months to six months, and your six months to nine months. And so you would have... Older members mixed with middle peer members mixed with younger members, and the ability for the older members to have influence, those middle peer to have influence over people who are just coming in, who in their hearts may be ready or be willing, but may, may not be as committed or invested as someone who's been there three or four or five months. So yeah. if someone is there less than 30 days, they're not fully invested and committed and, you know, and boom – ready to make that commitment. You put drugs in front of them, nine, eight and a half out of ten times the person is going to use. And so it's the, the bringing of the drugs into the environment to me that is the, the, serious, the serious violation of the safety and the, um, of the environment. It's that act for me. Even though the using, the, 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 the person who did it, them using, and other people who are there partaking in it is bad, okay? But I understand that. The other one, right. I don't, I, the other one is the one I have a problem getting. I don't get that. Because you can freely choose. Even if you are in a program, okay, you can choose to, if you, like, you know, I still want to use, well, you can use outside. You could just leave, walk off the property, go about your business and use. You could do that. Or some people are on legitimate appointments for medical or legal purposes, and while they're on those appointments, they make bad decisions, they use, they relapse, okay? But I always say, okay? The relapse is an event. It's an experience. We can deal with it, okay? But it's much better than bringing drugs back onto the property and using them and exposing other people to them. This way, and I, and I don't mean to sound callous when I say this. This is just a reality. At least you're only impacting yourself when you do that. Right. 
You're making a decision that the consequences of that decision only affect you, nobody else. But when you decide you're going to infiltrate the community and violate the sanctity of the environment, that exposes everybody in the family. And everyone is at a different place, and especially now, because basically everyone that's in, our, let's say, our residential program, okay, and every residential program of which there are four now in the county, you know, the maximum is 90, 90 days with a 30-day, you know, ex, uh, possible extension. So the maximum possibility is 120 days. Call that four months. So no one would be older than four months. Well, well, back in the day, four months you were you were you were you were just coming out of younger memberhood younger member status. You recall that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. back in the day, you know, we, four I months. Think we actually did. I think we actually did like a three-part segment at one point. Um, no, maybe that wasn't the exact three-part segment, but we, we did talk about, oh, yeah, like the first, the, the trimesters. So the trimesters, yes. Yeah. So right. right right now, treatment really just consists of that first trimester, whereas before, right, right. Right, right. so before you had people in the second and in the third, and so you didn't have as, you know, if everyone's in the first trimester, everyone's in that kind of same period of time, it's very difficult to find a person in, that's just engaging the recovery process and they're within that first month, two month, three month period that they have established a wherewithal. I mean, unless you really got that commitment, you know, from the moment you walk in, you know, you're at risk if someone brings drugs in. That's been my experience. You're at risk. And so they're putting everybody at risk. And I got a serious problem with that. I got a serious problem with that. So you got that. Then something that I have just the so there's always a first time for everything. So I have never experienced this, Mr. Producer. Okay. Well, let me back up because there's a couple of things. First off, what's the best way to phrase this? One thing that has changed in the last two to three years in the adult treatment population, but we started seeing it within the last, what year are we in, 2017? So that would be the last five years when we were still providing adolescent services. Okay? And that is... For a long time in residential treatment, the majority of problems when it came to um, client-to-client interaction, opposite-sex interaction, romantic you know, um, relationships, all that stuff, eight and a half, nine out of ten times, you know, the males were the ones initiating the, the issue. Yep. And Lo and behold, to my surprise, over the last two years, um, and the word on the street from others, providers, is that residential providers that, um, not in this county per se, but in other counties that were still doing co-ed, that the script has flipped. Not entirely, but it's almost like equal justice for <laughs> equality for <Yeah>. all. <laughs> yeah. So 
And, you know, I wasn't ready for that. I wouldn't expect that, but that's the current reality. So another thing that occurred while you were gone was, and which was a first, which is, you know, female residents at the recovery residence inviting uh, non-residents into the living facility. You know, this is like, this is unheard of. I mean, it's like someone walking down the street, walking into the, you know, walking into the facility and just making themselves at home. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's almost unfathomable that that could even happen. So it's so unfathomable that you don't even think about it in your mind because it's just something that, you know, wouldn't happen, but it happened. Right. The female, two female clients, and or one, I don't recall all the details, but invited a couple of ex-residents or you know males into the uh, the female dorm at the recovery residence. I was like, wow, yeah, really? As if they, as if they weren't even in a program. Exactly. So, like, what's that about? I mean, what a um, a, what a a violation of the environment. What the hell's going on out here? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It had me in a uh an, an old school excuse that noise in the background by the way. It had me in an um an old school uproar. What are your thoughts, Mr. Producer? Uh, yeah, I, it's very, um, well, let me speak to the first point you made, which I think is a very, very valid point that at least from my standpoint, my stance working in the field, the position that I'm in, I understand that not everybody that comes into treatment is going to be ready to make that change, ready to take the step. Some might come in on the fence and maybe they get it, maybe they don't. Some might come in fully motivated and still don't get it. And some might come in who thought they were ready, but it turns out they aren't, and that's okay. Oh, I don't expect just because you've stepped onto the sacred ground of OCG that things have changed and and you're going to be a better person and yada, yada, yada. So the, the point that you made that, and this is why I preface this, is the idea that if you're not ready, I'm not going to take that personally as an employee of the organization. Uh, Your counselors certainly aren't going to take that personally. But if you're going to make the decision to go out, you know, we'll use this. This is a term that's used in the land of uh, recovery and treatment. If you you need to go back out there and maybe do some more research, um, then by all means, if that's what you feel you need to do, go ahead and do that. Um, best of luck to you. Hopefully, uh, you know, it does whatever it needs to do for you and you don't end up getting in too serious of trouble or hurt. And you can end up, you know, getting into a place that is going to help you for the long run. But the idea that you would make the decision that you're not yet ready but you're going to now bring things back to the facility and jeopardize other people's recovery is where I have a serious problem with it. 
because I'm not going to talk you into staying if you're adamant about leaving. I'm not going to twist your arm or put you in a headlock. If you need to go out and, and you still feel like getting high or doing whatever it is you're going to do, then that's a decision you're going to have to make and live with as an adult. Um, I certainly wouldn't advise it or recommend it, but, hey, it is what it is, and you're going to go out there and, and you're only bringing yourself down, so to speak. The second that you jeopardize the environment or others, and I've heard the argument time and time again, well, you can't, if, if you bring drugs back, you can't force other people to use. If they use, then that's a decision that they made, which is true to an extent. But like I said at the beginning of all this, we do get some people who come to us who are maybe on the fence. And... They're not strong enough in their recovery yet, uh, to use your elevator analogy. They're not strong enough yet to be on that elevator. Uh, but they don't necessarily want to use or left to their own devices. They wouldn't go out and, and use. But when it's put in their face, they have a moment of weakness, and that moment of weakness is capitalized upon, which it wouldn't have otherwise been had you not made that opportunity available. Uh, and so, yeah, bringing it back into the environment and jeopardizing everybody around you, that's uh, absolutely absurd, absolutely ridiculous. And you're not held here against your will. You can certainly go out and get high if that's what you want to or choose to do, but make that decision for yourself. Don't, don't put others in a position. So that, that's my primary thought or my primary feeling behind it. Uh, to speak to uh, a later point that you brought up about kind of the boldness of the, uh, the clients that we had at the time who were inviting people who were not allowed on the property onto the property uh, to do these kinds of things is way out of line. It is, it is uh, definitely a statement that, A, you're not ready, B, you don't want to be here, you're definitely not in any place to where you want to comply with some sort of structure and if that's the case kind of like you said you may have explained that to the judge prior to being released uh, into the custody of a program with, with probation being governing body and just said I'm not ready uh, perhaps I'll be ready a month from now two months from now perhaps I'll never be ready but at this very moment I'm certainly not and I'd rather not be put in a place where I might bring other people down who are trying to do something better for themselves. That's just not me at this time. So, you know, what are my other options? Uh, the, obviously the one thing, and, and you mentioned this and what you were speaking about is clearly if, if a judge gives a client the choice jail or treatment, many of them are going to choose treatment because they don't want to be in jail. Um, but yeah, that, that's uh it would be, you'd be much better served, I think, yourself. And what I've told people this is if you don't want treatment, you're probably better served actually staying in jail or serving that time out. Because at least in jail, you're not going to be confronted 24-7 by a bunch of people who are trying to change and being having the pressure put to you to make a change. In jail, you can just be who you want to be. Um, and I, I, I would imagine that would be far less stressful to a human than it would be to be placed in an environment full of people who are trying to do something else who are going to hold you accountable to that 24-7, even if you don't want it. Um, so those are, my, those are my general thoughts. I've always said, <clears throat> excuse me, 
it's much easier to be in jail because, as you stated, um, no one is going to uh, – uh, you're not going to be forced in jail to uh, look at yourself in the mirror and uh, um, self-reflect, self-analyze, nor are you going to, as you stated, get external uh, uh, peer pressure to do that. Look at yourself, self-analyze, ch- make changes, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's not going to happen in jail. So that, to me, and I'm not. I've never been in jail, so I'm not speaking in terms of how difficult or easy, but in terms of uh, what we ask a person to do, which is very hard for a person to do, jail is easy because it is very hard to look at yourself critically and also accept critical um, constructive assessment of of your own self by others that you have to take in and look at, okay? That's not easy to do. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. Our instinct is to put the stiff arm out. And in the treatment environment, we ask you to do what doesn't come natural to, for most humans to do, which is to look at yourself honestly, identify the areas that you need to correct and, make the, and start the process to make those changes. I mean, people that have nothing to do with treatment that find that hard to do. So it's it's not unique to someone being in the treatment program. Right. It's hard to change, period, regardless. But, yeah, we, we try and uh, uh, not only ask you to do I'm not sure if I am still audible to the audience at large, but it looks like the host has dropped off once again. Uh, we are – we were coming up toward the end of the topic anyway. I believe, um, you know, generally speaking, we were, you know, recounting our thoughts on, and I believe it's cyclical while we're, um, you know, working in this environment that these things do happen as far as peer groups that go through maybe once every six months, once every eight months, where you're going to get a group together who, you know, just so happens to be bad timing. Certain people get together who maybe all are feeling down at a certain moment or having a moment of weakness. And as a result, um, make poor decisions that impact the safety of the environment that jeopardize um, other clients treatments. And I think the ultimate goal that the producer was trying to speak to and that I was second, you know, giving a second opinion on that. And I agree with him is that if you're going to go out, do not take others with you. If you are at a place in your life where you're prepared to make a decision to say there's still more I'd like to do in that old lifestyle, then by all means, you got to go for it, and then whatever consequences come your way, you're going to have to live with those consequences. That said, as long as you make that decision by yourself, you're not going to bring anybody down with you, and that is the ultimate goal as far as keeping the environment safe, Um, not – putting others in a position that they don't need to be in if they're trying to work on themselves. And the second somebody brings something back on the property, contraband of that nature, um, you are jeopardizing the safety of the environment. And and it's unfair to place others in a moment where they have to make a decision where they might not yet be prepared to make such a decision, um, you know, when, when they're being told that they're in a safe environment. And they're going to have an opportunity to work on themselves 
uh, that's when it becomes the program's responsibility and the staff's responsibility to make a decision to discharge folks. That's what needs to be done because the environment needs to be maintained in a nature that is conducive to change and recovery for those who are here utilizing our services for what they're intended to be utilized for. Um, And so it is a shame when things like that happen and it would be best, you know, again, it's not personal. If you, if you are in that kind of environment and you believe you're not ready to communicate that, say I'm not ready and you go out and you do what you have to do but not to put others in that position who are attempting to work on themselves. Um, and so I do believe that was maybe the host's bottom line with this, with this show topic for today. And I would have to completely agree with him in that regard. Um, you know, that ultimately the environment needs to be maintained such that those who are here and want treatment can receive that without being put in compromising positions. And, um, you know, that, that is, that is the ultimate goal. That is what we are here to do. That is what we're here to provide. So, uh, that said, we're going to try and figure out these technical difficulties. I am going to drop a little, uh, we will take a little commercial break while we try and figure this out and, uh, hopefully get back to you on the other side with a little closing thoughts from the host and the recovery sport time segment. Yeah. 
Obviously, this problem is in um, their Direct Connect feature because it's only knocking me off, not you. Um, Right. We're going to have to get during our – between now and our next show a couple weeks, we're going to have to do what we did back then, back in the day because it's two years ago. Um, They're going to have to do something because – it's something specific that is happening each time, three three in a row. And the way that it happens is is, is very odd. <clears throat> very abrupt. And the option, so what happens is I have to sit and actually wait for an error message to pop up, and then I have to... X out of that, and then wait for the link to pop back up and says, oh, it seems like uh, a show is interrupted. Would you like to continue? And I'm <laughs> right. like, yeah, yeah. You know, I would like to continue. And I click yeah, that, that, and then nice. boom, then I'm back. So, so how long was that? About uh, was that about, about a minute? Oh, that's that's long. That, that's what it seems like. That's what it seemed like before. Like it was like five minutes long. But when when I play the show back to listen, it doesn't seem like that long. But who knows? We'll see how it sounds. But. Um, of course, with our standards, it's unacceptable by right. any stretch. Yes. Anyway, so um, we strive for perfection. So our apologies to our listeners. Um, 
and those that are going to be listening to the podcast. But where was I? <laughs> yeah, we were kind of wrapping it up, and you were kind of giving your, your bottom line, so to speak, your bottom line thought, and really what I assuming that the audience could hear me, and I'm not even sure that they could. They can't they, 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 they can hear you. Okay, I, I spoke they are able to. They are, they are. They. I'm sorry. They are able to hear you when I get knocked off. Just so you know that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I did was I, I kind of spoke for you and myself in saying the bottom line is no one is going to be offended or no one is going to take it personally if you come into treatment and at some point in your treatment you realize you're not ready. This is not for you. There's more that you need to go out and experience. And if that is a decision that you come to, to be respectful enough of the environment and your peers around you and mature enough really to yourself to say, to to go and communicate that to a counselor, to a probation officer, to somebody and say, you know what, I'm not ready for this. I am feeling like I'm very close to making a poor decision and I would rather not do that where other people could be jeopardized or impacted. So I'm going to need to go out and do that by myself. And not to bring others into the mix, in, into the mix, because then you, you jeopardize a bunch of people's recovery and you jeopardize the safety of the environment, which we have made safe and sold to the general public as safe to those who want to come in and try and um, help themselves. Escape the, uh, escape the streets. Come somewhere where it's di- different from being out in the streets, different from being uh, around drugs. And then so all of a sudden, now, our environment is no different than the streets, and that's probably what's the most bothersome to me. And the, the people that I ultimately, in the end, where I, where I end up with holding responsible are the other members of the family because there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, the, family, you know, the family always knows what's going on and what's happening and what isn't happening. Who's doing what? Who isn't doing what? Whether or not the family steps up to the plate and, and takes care of their business, that's a different story. Uh-huh. But, you know, more often than not, I'm not saying every single time, but more often than not, someone in the family knows, someone, if not multiple persons, knows when something is going down or has been going down or is about to go down that should not be happening in the program. And just by virtue of common decency, okay, it's inappropriate to happen in the program. Now, when we have incidents of sexual acting out, okay, between the sexes or the same sexes, whatever it may be, The one caveat to that, even though it's against the rules, is that I understand that it's a natural and biological function of life. Doesn't mean you're supposed to be doing it in in, in the program. And engaging in that in the program, you have to develop discipline to do, you know, do what you're supposed to do where you're supposed to do it. So... I understand that to a certain extent. I don't accept it, but I understand it. This is the one right. I don't understand. I don't accept it, and I don't understand it. 
Why go to church if all you're going to do is scream out and yell out and disrupt the pastor, minister, rabbi, or um, uh, what's the other one called? Imam. What, the priest? Priest, yes, that's another one. Why, why go to those houses of worship if you're just going to stand up, yell, and interrupt the person? If you don't like what they're saying, don't go. Completely agree. So why go to a treatment program if you're not ready and, 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 and if you're going to uh, consciously make a decision to infiltrate the environment with drugs and, and or use on the property? Go out, get, bring it back in, and use. I don't get that. I'll never get it. I'll never get it. Yep. I'll never understand it, and I'll never get it. And I certainly won't accept it. So that's why we have, you know, um, and this is the, people think that it's, it's easy for programs to have zero tolerance. I don't know of any program that I've ever been uh, around, know the people who run them, that they're in the business of not helping people so that they go out of their way to throw people out and make it difficult for people to obtain recovery. In fact, it's the, it's the exact opposite. They're about helping. They want to try and help people. But when they got to, when they got to implement zero tolerance policies because people are just like so disrespecting the environment, I mean, that's, that's sad. Very much so. And so I can't imagine, uh, you know, during my time going through treatment, and of course, everybody's experience is their own experience. We don't compare experiences, but we can compare cultures, the family cultures that existed. And so I like to do my non-empirical, <laughs> anecdotal uh Never studied, no evidence behind to back it up, uh, little, little uh, studies off the top of my head, of the family Sounded cultures. Like the that beginnings ex- of some great research. Which I won't be doing, <laughs> but just off the top of my head, the various cultures that existed in the families as the years you know, went on and society kind of evolved and changed and different things came into play, social media, cell phones, blah, 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 came into play, and how, the, and how it impacted the culture of the family inside the treatment environment. It's similar to when I say to people, the thought, the thought, listen carefully now, remember, I'm just talking about the thought, the thought of me either A, raising my voice, or B, using a curse word to one of my parents never entered my cerebral cortex, meaning that (laughs) I didn't have the opportunity to entertain the thought to then have to make the decision to say, no, don't go there. It never entered my cerebral cortex. Now, I don't know if my mother or father did something to me in utero, to say, 
don't even think of it when you come out, and therefore it was never thought of? I have no idea. Maybe I'll ask my mother. But the thought never occurred to me. So I'm certain, however, that it was the environment that existed that played a part in that, consciously and subconsciously. And so when I think of the environment that I was a part of, okay, when I was going through my treatment experience, there wasn't always this conscious drumbeat of what you can do and what you can't do. It was almost an unspoken telepathic subconscious drumbeat of what you can do and what you can't do. What will get you thrown out and what will get you, you know, what will, you know, allow you to continue on your path. And the deal that it was made of when someone dared violate the sanctity of the environment, or even if it was suspected and not proven, but the fact that there was a suspicion, there was one time in house number three, which you know, know nothing about, but I'm just saying, house number three at Swan Lake, it was on a Saturday morning during GI, and there was a smell of smoke. Now, I'm going to tell you the end of the story first so that you could see how, how, how to extreme it went. It turned out it was thought that someone was smoking marijuana in the house. It turned yeah. out to be somebody was smoking close to the back door an old Marlboro cigarette, which for those who smoke Marlboros will tell you that sometimes it has that whiff to it. Yeah. It just has a certain whiff to it if you catch it at the right angle that it gives you that same scent almost. And that's what it was. But it was a five-alarm fire bell that went off. Requests got canceled. People got called back upstate from where, you know from the city. Everybody had to come back to the house. I mean, it was a whole big affair, all because someone smelled something that they thought smelled like marijuana. It didn't even occur to them that it could have been a cigarette, someone smoking in the house, which would have been a big deal also, but never occurred to them. Now, I know this because of being around someone, you know, Joe, who smoked Marlboros, and I know what an old Marlboro tobacco smells like, and sometimes it just had that whiff to it that it kind of smelled a little bit like, you know, light marijuana. But it was a huge deal. It was a five-alarm fire. And it was made a huge deal to send an environmental message. That look, we're trying to do everything we can. We want to keep this environment safe. The last thing we want up there are drugs infiltrating the environment because it defeats the whole purpose. Right. People are coming here to try and get recovery, try and get clean. And if you have drugs in the environment, it defeats that whole purpose. And so the family has to be the one that places that and sets that tone. And that's what, was, and that's what happened. And that's what must happen. However, and I know we're past the top of the hour, but this is an important topic for me. Absolutely. If the family is not doing their job of policing that, and I'm not open to the excuse, because I've heard this sometimes over the years, that, oh, there's only one, two, or three of us who are trying to do the right thing, and we're overwhelmed 
by the number of people who are trying to be negative or, or, or actively being negative. Yeah. Now, I always kick it right back to them and say, you one, two, or three persons that are trying to do the right thing have more combined power than all of the persons in the house that are trying to do the negative thing. Your task, what you're charged with, is if you is to not accept the behavior. And so, yes, it may seem overwhelming because you're outnumbered, but it's just a an experience. Can you indicate? consistently to those persons that you're not accepting it. You're not going to go for it. You're going to call it out. Call them out. You're going to drop your slips on them and encounter them. And you're going to hold them accountable. Now, you may do all those things, and you may do them consistently. And let's say, worst-case scenario, you have zero effect on the behavior. Okay? Now it's time for you to move on to your next phase of your recovery ex- like, you know, experience. What have you done? What you have done is it's not whether or not you have affected change, immediate change upon those persons where they said, okay, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing and do this. It's that you consistently, every day, for every day that you were there, didn't accept it. So if you did that, and he did that, and she did that, and she did that, and you just keep multiplying that, eventually what's supposed to happen is if the family puts pressure on those people who are doing things they shouldn't be doing, you, only one or two things can happen. It's, it's just the law of the universe. The law, it's, I, I won't say physics, but it's just the law of the universe that one or two things must happen. Either eventually the person complies and conforms and makes effort to change what they're doing, or they get sick and tired of constantly being held accountable and being confronted and the pressure one of the strongest pressures known to man, the pressure that's being brought to bear, they say, you know what, it's too much, I'm leaving. We don't want that, but if that's the end result, that's okay. That's part of the process. Right. But the family's got to do that. It's not my job to do that. It's not your job to do that. The family has to do that. So in the end, I always go to the family and say, put my hands up. What y'all going to do? Well, however y'all want the environment to be, it's how it will be. Y'all want drugs up in here? You want it to resemble a crack house? That's what it will be. And that's what your experience is going to be of treatment. And you won't be able to say, oh, OCG or this program, that program, they quote unquote allow drugs in their program. We don't allow nothing. We don't allow drugs. We we give adults the opportunity to be responsible. 
and obey rules and regulations and build their self-discipline, no right from wrong. Small things. And when someone chooses to do the wrong thing, they have to get called on it. And eventually, you know, people will get away with stuff for a little bit, you know, but that old saying that's been around long before me, you know, what doesn't come out in the wash comes out in the rinse. Eventually it's going to come out. It may not even come out while you're, while, while you're still a resident. It may come out a couple of months after you leave, but eventually it always comes out. That has always uh, bared to be true. And the other thing that I was told, which I found interesting as a, as a, a, a person in treatment, is that when, when, when your treatment experience consists of you doing the wrong thing, okay, and you think that, okay, I'm still going to be able to progress in my recovery as I'm doing the wrong thing, that's not the way it works. People do think that. And so all that's really happening, in my, and this is just my humble opinion now, is that people, are just, it's, uh, people who engage in this are living out their negative reservations, but in the treatment environment. That's what it comes down to in a nutshell. This is something that you continue to want to do, and you're living it out as we speak in the treatment environment rather than, as you said and I said, that what you should show is growth, discipline, even though it wouldn't be in your best interest. It's in the best interest of the environment that you do so because you're not ready. But unfortunately, people put us in positions where our hands, our hand, or hands plural, get forced, and we have to take action to protect the environment. And that's, of course, like I said, where I then go back to the family because I want to know why did the family allow it to get to this point? How did that happen? How did someone feel so comfortable? that they can bring drugs in, so comfortable that they can invite residents onto the property without proper authority. How in my mind did I get so comfortable that I think thought that that would be okay and still be able to enjoy the privilege of being in this environment? How did it get to the point where I can think that? So that's what I, I, these questions are all rhetorical for me that I ask myself, trying to think, you know, put myself in the mind of that person. And I know that some people might say that's crazy, but I'm trying to think what would make a person think that they could be that comfortable that they could, in the treatment environment, violate the sanctity so much and then still be in that environment and take advantage of the privileges of that environment. And not get tossed onto the street. And I emphasize the word privilege because it is a privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege. I sound like I'm ramping up when I should be ramping down, Mr. Producer. Hey, the topic's got you going. And you know what? It's, uh, it, it is a topic that invokes a lot of emotion and a lot of passion because ultimately – yourself, myself, no, we, we wouldn't be working in this field or anybody who works 
for any program out there would not be working in this field if on some deeper kind of level you truly cared about doing your best to provide a place or being a cog in the process of somebody changing their life. And when you see other folks who, who, who are in here who should be doing the same thing, who not only are not engaged in the process but are a detriment to the process by doing engaging in behavior that they shouldn't be engaging in on site, um, it riles us up because essentially whatever you're doing to yourself or whatever becomes of yourself, that's one thing, but you are cheating somebody else out of an opportunity who might seriously want it. And I think that's what gets, you know, that's what invokes the emotion. So I wrote in our description and I'm going to call something else out in the description, which is embarrassing. Once again, I don't know if my fifth grade teacher is alive, but if she is, goodness gracious, my spelling. I know what it is. I need to wear my reading glasses now when I'm typing because how the hell do I spell environment? What did I use? Two M's? What kind of word is that? Anyway. <laughs> and when I was going through treatment, they had a term called stinking thinking. And I'm sure you heard of it too during your time, Mr. Producer. And that usually applied to us, you know, early in our recovery, you know, trying to work our way out of the, the, the silly ways we used to think and, 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 and come to conclusions of things and end up making bad decisions. So you got stinking thinking, bad decisions, and then, of course, the worst one of them all, out-and-out intentional subversion. Obviously, as I've been saying, the out-and-out subversion is the part that gets to me. It's almost like an enemy of the state. <laughs> That's right. You spend, as you noted, what you, you spend your time doing is, because it was done for you, is to trying to provide an environment where recovery can take place. And you know for a fact it can't take place if certain things in- infiltrate. And not just drugs, but certain types of attitudes and behaviors that also could infiltrate and form a subculture that influences the environment to a significant degree. And all of a sudden you no longer have a- an environment that's conducive for recovery to take place. So we always have to be on the lookout. We always have to be uh, vigilant in trying to make sure that what was handed down to us is carried forward. But that responsibility wasn't on the staff, it, and it never can be because the staff don't sleep in the facilities at night. They don't live there. They go home. Well, who, whose responsibility is it? Well, it has to be the people who live there. It has to be the people who are in participating in the program. And that's why I always tell the clients, at some point, what's your legacy going to be? What are you leaving behind for those coming that are coming to coming, you know, behind you? It's not just I mean, it, 
Sometimes people are just right in the now, in the moment, not thinking about, A, what they're doing, what impact it's having outside of them, what impact it's having to the program. You know, externally, Mr. Producer, it, you know, external parties and, and the way they frame it, I, I have to kind of snicker to myself sometimes, but I know why they do it. But we are, we are, if you can look on our license, we are a drug-free substance abuse treatment program. So the first question they ask when you have an incident or incidents, plural, of people bringing drugs onto the – illicit drugs onto the property okay, and engaging in their use is, I thought you were a drug-free treatment program. And they don't ask that to be funny or to be sarcastic. They're saying, why can't you keep illegal drugs off of your property, out of your program? Right. And they don't care about the reasons, you know, why and, and, and the circumstances and who's doing what. They do not care. So, you know, you have that part of it, too, that we have to be concerned about. And that's just a reality. There's no, you know, we can't do anything about that. That's a reality. Yeah. When when drugs come onto the the treatment program property and get used, okay, other people find out and they want to know what the hell is going on there at that program. You used the you used the term, Mister Producer, about being a cog in the wheel. Mm-hmm. And some people, each one of us who are one of the cogs, let's say, in the wheel, could mistakenly look at that as a negative. When it, you know, we could say, "Well, I don't want to be a cog in no big wheel." But in in essence, just the essence of it is that we are each one of us a cog in that wheel having but having that same goal we all have that same goal but each one of us may play a different role in pushing people towards that goal pushing our clients pushing those who want to obtain recovery towards that goal so each one of us is a cog in one way shape or form but there's no greater and, and no more important cog than the client themselves. The most important cog in the wheel, the client. And so when all is said and done, when we do everything we have to do to try and clean, clean, clean it, you know, get everything cleaned up and back on track, going back down the straight path, we always line ourselves up right back in front of the family and say, where do we go from here? Because it's not on us. It's on you. That's right. Well, I've rambled on for about uh, an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's needed. It's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's a topic that 
that is very deep on and multi-leveled, multi-layered as well. Like you said, with outside entities and everything that goes into when, when the community encounters a, a situation like that. Well, I'm not, I think, I mean, I anticipate where I'm, I'm going to call it what you want, venting, whatever it may be. This is going to happen periodically because like I wrote at the very end of the description, at the very end of the description, I said, we got to call it out. Right. We got to call it out. And I don't know, I'm not sure if it's streaming into the facilities this week or not, but if it is, I hope they get where I'm coming from. If it's not, they'll figure, they'll find out. Absolutely. What the hell's going on out here? <laughs> That's all I got, sir. <laughs> That's it. That's it. No, call it um solid wrap up on that uh we will take a quick music break and uh get to some x-files and potentially some uh recovery sport time uh segment coming up here after the quick commercial break it doesn't look like we have any callers on hold currently perhaps some will call in but i'm sure we have a stack of x-files to go through so we will get to y'all on the other side we do we do
coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Dope fiend 
uh, multiple meanings, but in the context of this question, applied to it, it describes certain behaviors that addicts engaged in, and we would call them dope fiend behaviors. So, the question that I would ask in answering a question with a question, I would say, are you still engaging in those behaviors that you were engaging in when you were an addict? Those dope fiend behaviors. And if the answer is no after one year, two years, etc., then why would you refer to yourself as something like that? Because there's nothing positive about that term. In context or out of context, there's nothing positive about it. So if you've removed yourself from that life and you're no longer engaging in that behavior, you shouldn't refer yourself to uh, refer to yourself as such, and not allow others to refer to you as that either. That's just my own personal opinion. Do you have a thought on that, sir? Um. What are you doing? Drinking a Slurpee or something? What's all that noise in the background? Oh, uh, there might be a little uh, street cleaning, as it were, based on my current location. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're hearing uh, we're hearing the rake, uh, the rake or the broom. But no, I I, uh, I tend to agree with your stance right. on that. Which, um, oh, sorry, I'm I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. What what you really mean to say is the results of the whip cracking over there is what we hear in the background. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that is exactly right. Yeah, indirectly, that that is what you are hearing. Okay. Um, th- things need to be cleaned up after such experiences. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I generally agree with you. I, you know, I would say one thing is it, it is a term that has been used in, in the field of recovery. It, you know, I, I'm sure longer than I've even been alive on this earth. Um, and as we generally move, and, and when I say generally, I mean outside of our field and just society in general becomes a lot more sensitive to uh, terms and issues and things that are brought to the table, um, this is one that gets brought up all the time because uh, on its face it's a degrading term and um, you know everything else that you might think when you hear somebody refer to someone as that. Um, but I don't ever get the sense that it's meant to be used as a degrading term. Um, no, it, it isn't. Used... It, no, it isn't because it's right. meant to describe behavior. So, I mean, so I could say, I right. say what, do you, what, what, are you, what are you doing? You're acting like a, what, what are you acting like a dope fiend for? That's dope fiend behavior. So right. it's incumbent upon me, the person using the term, to get across to the person I'm saying to that I am speaking to behavior, not to you, in terms of the person, but the behavior that you're engaging in. Right. I think uh, it was said best by a client we had uh, in the adolescent program long, long time ago. And I was running an encounter group. This was during an encounter group. I was actually co-facilitating the encounter group. Um, And I forget exactly who was running the group, but regardless, the encounter happening between these two clients and the one giving the focus 
said he believed that the client he was giving the focus to was a snake. And the group leader promptly said there's no name calling in group. And so the client then rephrased, allow me to rephrase, and said, okay, your behavior is snakish. And uh, (laughs) as hard as it was for me not to laugh, and I had to be professional running that group, uh, he, he, the whole group heard me laugh a couple of times at that one. And uh, I said, yeah, that's good on you. Good on you. I'm going to use that one in the future. And so that speaks to exactly what you just said. You're speaking to the behavior, not the person. So he rephrased, and everybody got a good chuckle out of that. But that is the, the underlying point is that we're speaking to how you're, how you're behaving, not who you are as a person. Exactly. Now, immediately followed up by that, the next question is just ironically counter to it by Samantha T from Las Vegas. Why do I think that I'm cured after one year of recovery? Why, she said, why did I think I was cured? Yeah. She says, why do I think that I'm cured after one year of recovery? Uh, interesting. So some, sometimes we get a question where it's we don't know what the person is actually thinking or what they actually mean when they ask the question. So this is one of those questions because I would ask, well, I don't know, why, are you, why do you think you're cured? To get some more deeper feedback on the question. Um, so without that, we can only surmise and speculate, et cetera. So, but as a general, let's say just put it into the general realm. Uh, I think it's normal that after experiencing a year of recovery and you're continuing to move forward, that people start to feel good about themselves. Yeah, I mean, true. Damn it. I mean, what is this about if it isn't to feel good about oneself? And so the hope is that not only do you feel good about yourself, but you don't allow that feeling good about oneself to throw you off course, but that you embrace the feeling good, you experience the feeling good, but you remain laser focused on the task at hand. So um, that word, and my hands are in quotes, cure, uh, I've always been uncomfortable with that word on both sides of the coin. Because Again, you know, there's some people that believe, you know, that once you're an addict, you'll be an addict for the rest of your life. Um, You'll just be almost like, quote, unquote, a dry addict. Okay. Um, And I vehemently, from the bottom of of my soul, disagree with that so much. So I will argue until the end of days in regards to that. But that's just me. Um, but if you use the word cure, to me that infers that what you had was a disease or a sickness. And so, again, that will then come back to the philosophical discussion about addiction in and of itself. What is it? Is it a behavioral problem? Is it a 
disease? Is it a psychosocial issue? You know, all of these eternal questions that we have. And I can only refer back to the late Eddie Hill. And he used a hand gesture, which was almost like, you know, his hand across the table to, you know, like to smack it away and say, ultimately, all of that means nothing. Because the person who's engaging in their recovery is not thinking about it that way. They're not looking and they're not having these intellectual discussions in their mind. They're just doing the simple things to obtain, retain, and move, you know, recovery and move on with their lives. That's it. Yep. Only, you know, folk who are studying this, researching this, et cetera, et cetera, getting to these deep intellectual discussions about, you know, things like that. So clients sometimes, I think, use the word, you know, but they're kind of using it either out of context or in context when they say cure. And I think what they really mean is, hey, you know, when, when, when I, you know, put my all, put my share in it, purpose and do do the right thing and I'm moving forward with my life okay you know what does that mean in terms of me quote unquote being an addict and being described as such and I think it speaks to the first question about being referred to as a dope fiend to me it's in the same category being referred to as an addict and I'll repeat it. If you are not engaging in that behavior, engaging in that life, engaging in those behaviors, and you have, had, you have a sustained track record of doing the right thing, that, so that encompasses everything, doing the right thing, okay, then I would not see why it would be in your best interest to refer to you in a term, using a term, that everybody would agree is a negative term. Yep. That's just that's just me. Yep. Um, how much time we got, Mr. Producer? How are we doing on time? Oh, we got about four minutes. And we were cheated. We were cheated by Blog Talk, and then we were cheated by the host who was just ram- rambling on for an hour and a half. That's right. Yeah. Well, it all started with the the Blog Talk was the unraveling. Yeah. I think the the energy from the disgust from that experience carried on into because we were winding down when that happened. Yeah, yeah, fueled the fire. And I, and I think the energy from that transferred over and and kind of ramped back up the energy of the discussion. It is what it is. What can I say? It's almost like uh, being being a child or being a, you know a kid and and doing something wrong and just happened to be on the wrong time and the wrong moment and your parent happens to be in the wrong mood. You just, your, your timing is just bad. You know, and as a result, you know, that's, you know, whatever happens, happens. All right. Let me move right along here. And see, I'm, I'm ill prepared. I got to reach for my glasses, but because I'm still in denial. <laughs> Uh, well, my brain, this is from James out of New Jersey. He calls it dirty Jersey. It is dirty with all that damn chemical plant nonsense over there. Uh, will my brain recover from over 20 years of drug abuse? 
And if so, how long do I wait for that to happen? Well, as okay. our disclaimer as our disclaimer said in the beginning, we are not doctors. But just speaking in general terms, I think and I think a doctor will say it all depends on what drugs you used. Because we've talked about it on here about, you know, you know, the man-made stuff versus the other stuff. And, you know, when you've used for a long time methamphetamine and versus other stuff and then how the weed of today compared to yesteryear and how strong it is and what impact is that going to have. And then the uncontrollable, such as your genetics and hereditary background, which leads to a big, I don't know. We don't know how long it will take. Some people snap, you know, they get off the drug for a couple of weeks and, you know, things come back together quickly. Other people, they need a couple of months to, to come back around and start to feel like they're old selves again, even if they know what that is. They've been using so long, you have no memory of what their old selves are. It's hard to say. But I do know one yeah, thing, Mr. True. Producer. I do know one thing. What's that? It's worth a shot. It's worth it's worth yeah. trying to find out. I do oh, know that. Agree. Got nothing to lose. That's true. How much time we got? We got time for another? Uh if you can answer it in about forty seconds. Let me see. How can I learn self-acceptance and be comfortable in my own skin and accept a sober me? Nope, I can't. I'm going to save that one. Can't do that one in 40 seconds. Okay, give us give us your uh give us your vintage closeout, your closeout. Okay. Your well, well, I mean the only thing I really I mean what can I say today? I mean other than, you know, That's pretty much Beautiful. sums it up for today, for me. <laughs> Beautiful. Well said. All right. Well, as always, we'd like to thank everybody who called in just to listen and or who may have called in for the Recovery Sport Time segment. Uh, we won't know if the show kicked you off or whatever because of technical difficulties. Don't, uh, forget our online, don't forget our online listeners. We have a lot of online listeners. That's right. Yeah, people who listen to the podcast through the archives. Uh, we do appreciate the ongoing support. Um, we hope to work through some of these technical difficulties over this next couple of weeks. So when we come at you again here near the end of August, we will be wrapping up the preseason of the NFL and getting ready for the regular season. And hopefully we'll come to you with a nice, smooth show to kick off our uh, entry into the fall season. That said, we hope everybody has a safe and productive couple of weeks, a fun couple of weekends, and we will catch you all on the next episode.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you